Around 70,000 children are reported missing every year in the UK. Certain groups of children and young people are more likely to go missing than others. For example, one in 10 looked after children are reported missing compared to one in 200 outside the care system. Similarly, if you're a young black male or a migrant, you're at higher risk of going missing and have a higher chance of being adultified when it comes to being supported. And we know that certain factors are exacerbating the problem. Children in care being placed outside their local area is just one example. And there is a clear link between going missing and being a victim of exploitation. As missing people report, seven in ten young people who have been sexually exploited have also been reported missing. And within our own child exploitation and missing services at Catch-22, we see this link starkly with the young people we support. In this episode of Catch-22 Minutes, we explore how and why children go missing, how it can be prevented, and the signs that suggest a missing episode may be linked to exploitation. We cover what to do if you're worried that a child is missing and discuss the response to missing children, including the good and not so good practice that can make a real difference as to whether a child goes missing again. This is Catch-22 Minutes. So today's episode, we're focusing on missing children and how that relates to child exploitation. And I'm joined by two fantastic guests where we'll be discussing this issue. We've got Josie Allen, who is Senior Partnerships and Policy Manager at Missing People, who are a charity providing specialist support to people who are at risk of missing and the families and friends who are left behind. And we've also got James Simmons-Reed, who is National Prevention Programme Manager at the Children's Society, who are a national charity working to transform the hopes and happiness of young people facing abuse exploitation and neglect. Josie, let me come to you first, if that's okay. Just tell us a little bit about the different ways um, in which children might go missing. So it's a really complicated issue. We know missing is often a symptom of some underlying harm or crisis that a child's experiencing. So um, children might go because they're experiencing abuse or neglect at home. They might feel that they need to run away for their safety. Sometimes they'll go missing because they're being groomed or exploited to do so. So um, they may think that they're making a choice um, to go and spend time with people, but actually that's often unsafe and they're being taken away from protective factors or uh, places of safety. Um, Some children will be struggling with their mental health um, and might unintentionally go missing or go missing because they just need to take a break from what's going on for them. What we do know is that missing is always quite risky. So whatever the uh, reasons that have led to them going, they're away from safety, they're away from accessing help. Um, And we know that that's not a situation we want to leave any child facing. So ideally, we'd, we'd address those root causes, we'd prevent them from going in the first place while acknowledging that... Um, we can't kind of lock people in. We need to actually support them to feel safer and, and happier in their home setting so they don't think this is their only option. Just thinking about the um, link between when a child goes missing and the fact that they may be being exploited, what kind of indicators should we be looking for, should professionals be looking for, or parents perhaps be looking for, um, that might indicate that there's exploitation going on? Maybe Josie first and then come to you, James. So one of the biggest warning signs that we hear from a lot from families and from young people um, is significant changes in behaviour. So if there's kind of really big changes in their interactions at school, in their relationships with people around them and in how they're presenting at home or how they're behaving in the family setting or care setting, we know that that can be a sign that something's going on. There's also some quite practical things like if a child's looking at their phone a lot just before they leave, if they have had any kind of new items that can't be explained or it's unclear 
clear where they've got them from. If a young person seems scared um, of anyone that they're spending time with or seems very angry or upset when they get in, but is unwilling or unable to explain why they're feeling like that. And sometimes it can be as simple as knowing that they're spending time with new people that they're not willing to talk about um, or that just aren't known to the family or carer. James, do you want to pick up on that point and that sort of link between children being exploited and then going missing? Yeah, of course. I think it's important to recognise that there is no one set of indicators. And, and I think, as Josie pointed out, the most important thing is to be paying attention to any changes, something that just feels out of the norm in a young person's behaviour. Um, and when we think about changes of behaviour, we don't just mean the kind of more commonly known changes, like a child becoming more withdrawn, seeming more upset, but also recognising children might behave more angrily, more aggressively, um, because we know that anger and aggression are, are common signs of trauma that can often be misidentified. I think it's yeah important to note that a lot of the indicators are similar between indicators of exploitation and indicators that a child might go missing. At the end of the day, children go missing often because they just don't feel seen and heard or don't feel that their needs are being met in a whole range of different ways. And so it's it's kind of the subtle nuances of picking up on that kind of that child being unhappy, um, as well as some of the points that Josie's already made about yeah changes in the relationships they might have. And important to also think about relationships that may have started online. And if the child is talking about meeting someone that they've only ever met online, but are now going to meet in person, that's also a concern. And I think to think a little bit about indicators beyond the family, home as well um, to recognise that everybody in society can play a role in perhaps noticing a child that might be at risk and reporting them to the police to ensure that they get the appropriate support. I think it's it's worth kind of acknowledging that anybody that notices a child travelling late or kind of at unusual hours during school hours might be an indicator that they may have gone missing. Um, and similarly picking up on the different kind of behaviours of a child seeming like they, they might be in need, um, noticing a, a child with somebody who seems to be controlling them in some way, um, and yeah, children that are, are kind of found in possession of, of any kind of drugs, or um, you know, obviously there's an overlap between children that may be found committing crime in the context of exploitation and that being linked to a missing episode, um, and obviously missing episodes can be very varying lengths, so it can be a child that's gone missing for a very short short period so if we think about how schools might need to pick up on this it's not just about a child who's been you know missing for a whole day sometimes they might have only missed a single lesson and and what you really need to just be noticing there is just those changes in behavior and circumstances and um, if they've suddenly got unexplained gifts or something that they're presenting with at school that they can't explain so it's yeah it's really varied that's really interesting james and i think what you've both really sort of emphasized here is the idea of prevention and how important that is in preventing children going missing in, in the first place so let's just dig into that a little bit more so if you're a you know a teacher or someone working with young people or a, or a family member and you, you do pick up on some of these signs and you're concerned what what can you do I think that like what I think the first thing even before we're talking about picking up on signs I think the most important thing when we consider prevention is it's about the relationship that's held with that child and young person and it's about how we hold a relationship with a child whether you're a parent whether you're a carer or a professional where they feel able to talk to you about what's going on in their life. Um, and that, that needs to include talking about their online life as much as their offline life. We often might have conversations with children about what they're up to at school. We don't often talk to them about what they're up to online that day in a non-judgmental way that's not just assuming that harmful things might have happened because that's not gonna encourage a conversation. And I think it's, yeah, really about like consistently making that time to, to really have that conversation about, about them and what's happening and anything they may have seen or come across that makes 
them feel uncomfortable and kind of facilitating a relationship where they can share that without being worried that they're going to be judged or that there's going to be immediate repercussions that harm them. But I think, yeah, coming back to that, that kind of response to when there are indicators, I suppose it's similar. It's really starting from a place of a conversation with them. Um, and then if, you know, after that conversation, the person's still left with real concerns. Um, and if they don't feel they're able to kind of manage those concerns themselves at home, particularly, then it's about obviously kind of reaching out to relevant professionals. But that's really going to depend upon the circumstances. Yeah, uh, just a couple of things that I'd add from a missing side is that um, we often think that parents and carers really need to advocate for the child in their care. So we do too often hear that those kind of early concerns when someone didn't know quite what was wrong, but they knew there were those changes in behaviour or something was not right, that it took quite a big fight to kind of get that acknowledgement, to get the support in place. And, and sadly, that does need to happen um, to ensure that those concerns are taken seriously. We know professionals are often supporting many children at once or carrying out lots of assessments. And we need to ensure that those worries are really heard and listened to. Um, and the other thing that we'd say is just take missing really seriously. So it is a warning sign. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's being exploited, but it means that something is going on. So we don't need to jump to catastrophe straight away. We don't need to immediately start kind of accusing the child of, of anything that might be happening to them. But as James said, talk to them, try and really create opportunities for them to share what's happening, be supportive um, and non-judgmental. There is a really fine line between kind of this discipline when a child's um, sort of not coming home when they're supposed to or pushing boundaries in a kind of normal teenage way. And I understand that people need to set those boundaries, but children should never be punished for going missing. Um, it is, it's a harm. It's a warning sign. It's not something that we should be having a go at them for or interrogating them about. It's something that we should be kind of creating a warm space to return to afterwards. So I'd really recommend, yeah, sort of having that understanding of when you're really worried and then acknowledging that the child might have been going through something really difficult and finding positive ways to chat about that and to not interrogate and to just kind of welcome someone home, create safe spaces um, and then start to explore what's been going on. Um, and one other thing that we've talked to young people a lot about recently is being reported missing and particularly children in care feel like they are often reported when their peers wouldn't be. And that's sometimes done absolutely rightly because uh, children who are being looked after in the care system might have um, become more vulnerable. They might be facing more challenges um, because of their experiences. They might be, be being targeted more because um, of their care status. But we shouldn't be automatically reporting someone as missing without having genuine concerns about what's happening because it is quite criminalizing it's over policing um and we think that actually there's so much more to the response to a child being missing um or a child being away from where they're supposed to be and building a relationship and trust around that rather than kind of assuming just making a police report is going to entirely address the issue so we think we should think about children going missing as much more of kind of a whole picture of what's going on for them who's best place to provide support who's best place to speak to them how can we empower them to not get to a point of kind of being reported missing can they stay in contact in a different way can we safety plan rather than kind of this automatic uh, police involvement which can be harmful when it's not necessary a lot of time it is necessary i'm not suggesting that people should not be reported missing but it shouldn't it, it's not the solution to 
exploitation it's only a part of the picture can i move now to the sort of practical step so you know you've come to a point where you think okay that child's not where they're meant to be they've not been in touch for a certain amount of time i'm really concerned what practical steps can you take um once you believe a child is missing so yeah if you're really worried about them you think they're at risk of harm absolutely call the police is the first one you need to get officers um to understand the risks they need to understand what's happening for the child why you're concerned and they need to start the investigation to find them um, the police will then carry out a risk assessment based on all of that information and the level of that assessment will then inform what actions they take. So it's really important to be clear about everything we've talked about in terms of warning signs and what's led you to believe that they might be at risk of harm. Um, we'd also recommend, if appropriate and safe to do so, that you continue to con try and contact the child yourself. Um, if if safe, you, that you go to anywhere that you think they might have been. Um, we know that there's examples of uh, young people who were known to sort of spend time in a certain park or at a certain location and yeah I absolutely stress if it's safe to do so because if you think someone's being kind of actively exploited the police need to attend. We do think that the more you can kind of make the child know that they're cared about, they're looked for, that you want to try and keep them safe the better it will be for those longer term relationships. Once a child is found it's just about providing appropriate and safe support for them on their return so one of the first things we always say is like make sure that they're fed um, that they've had a chance to have a shower um, unless there's sort of an active police investigation reason not to uh, that they have a sleep before you start asking them what's been going on because actually we know children who are away and have been exploited or have been in mental health crisis may well just be absolutely exhausted by what's happened to them and they need time to process and to feel safe before they're able to share what's been going on um, and then encouraging them to engage in any conversation so the police will do a safe and well check uh, or a prevention interview, they call it two different things. Um, uh, the local authority should arrange a return interview, which is another chance for the child to speak about what's happening for them. Um, and also parents and carers can speak about what's happened as well. We, we wouldn't encourage anyone to interrogate because that can really break down those relationships, but kind of gentle, open questions about what's been going on for someone, whether they're okay, whether they want to speak to anyone about what's happened while they're away can really help to kind of rebuild those relationships. Great. Thanks, Josie. And I know, James, I wanted to come to you on, on this one as well, because I, I guess a lot of the... Uh, kind of success in, in preventing a child going missing again is based on the response that they get from professionals you know, across the board um, when they return from that maybe initial missing incident. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, is it a consistent picture in terms of how professionals are responding? Um, if not, why not? Yeah, the picture is hugely varied. And I think to start by responding to that question, um, by coming back to kind of what to do when you report a child missing, um, I think it's really important to recognise that it can actually be quite difficult um, to get the response that's needed for a child because policing in particular is hugely overstretched. Um, and over the last few years, we've seen resource become more and more and more stretched within policing so that there's increasingly a move towards requesting that parents, carers, children's homes take additional steps before the police will even recognise a child being missing. Missing. And there's a real push and pull here where we recognise how overstretched policing is and how difficult it is for them to respond. And that there are, as Josie's pointed out, a lot of times where children are reported missing inappropriately. And yet at the same time, a huge number of children who should be reported missing are not being reported or are being reported and are not being actually treated appropriately. So I think a first thing there to, to kind of note is the importance of consistently advocating. You, you know, the person reporting that child likely knows them best, certainly better than the police officer they're speaking to. And 
So if they're genuinely concerned about that child, even if they're receiving pushback, it's really important to just keep pushing that point and to also then escalate if they don't feel they're getting the right response. We've done a lot of work with children's homes at the Children's Society where initially people would say, well, I was fighting really hard, but I was basically told by the police that they weren't going to treat the child as missing. But they didn't know where to go when they had that response. They didn't know who to escalate to. And so I think there's obviously a lot of work for those of us to do with those professionals around helping people to have a clear idea of where to escalate to. Um, but I think, yeah, to come back to your, your kind of broader question around the responses that, that children receive, they're hugely varied. Um, they, there's a real postcode lottery, inevitably, and, and it can vary based upon the individual officer responding. Um, it's also important to acknowledge, I know we've not really talked about refugee and migrant children um, so far, but uh, there's an incredibly disproportionate response that refugee and migrant children receive when they're reported missing, because unfortunately, often they are seen as an immigration offender first and a child in need of protection a very distant second. And so there can be even more challenges around needing to advocate for that child to be recognized as, as a victim and um, we know that refugee and migrant children go missing um, in really quite huge numbers although it's very difficult to get reliable data on that unfortunately it's one of the many things that needs addressing but we know many of them go missing when they've just arrived into the country and often within the first 48 to 72 hours and so there's so much that's needed there that, that, that we could talk about but I think when we when we're considering when they have gone missing there's um, a real need to move swiftly to encourage a safeguarding first response um, because sadly many of these children can go missing and never be found which is obviously a really worrying thing. To kind of try and round this up I'd really like to ask you both you know thinking about um, the system how professionals deal with um, or respond to people young children who people who've gone missing in your view what are the one or two things that really need to improve um, if we're to prevent children going missing and when they do go missing, respond to them in the best possible way. James? Yeah, I think I'll start with just a couple of reflections around refugee and migrant children going missing because there's so many things that need to be done to really address this. And I think focusing, first of all, on, on the prevention aspect, we need to have an assumption that a separated migrant child, a child arriving into the country on their own, is likely to have been exploited in some way. And we need to come from that place so that when we're first taking that child into care, when foster care as professionals are first meeting them, we've got this incredibly narrow window of time to actually safeguard that child while at the same time doing what we, we tend to call trust and rapport building in the children's society. And it's a really pressured window because if you don't get it right, that child can go missing and potentially never be seen ever again. And so we need increased collaboration between multi-agencies and we need to see the Home Office, Border Force, communicating with police, communicating with social care, which often doesn't happen. Um, we need to see multi-agency strategy or what get called Section 47 meetings being convened for these children, when often they're simply placed in foster care or in, in some other accommodation, um, semi-independent accommodation if they're 16 or 17 and there are uh, other issues there about the quality of those placements, but often with no assessment being done of whether they're at risk at all. And so nobody's really thought about that and nobody makes sure to book a translator immediately to kind of really get to know that child and when they're experiencing extreme 
dislocation, cultural dislocation, and may still be in touch with an exploiter, may be profoundly traumatized. There's a need to kind of articulate who professionals are, to understand what that child wants and needs, and to demonstrate how you might actually be able to provide that, which may actually lead to them thinking about the fact that this might be a safe person to talk to about their exploiter, where instead, if that didn't happen, they might think, I'm not safe and I'm just going to, to go missing. Um, and then I guess to, to think a little bit about when they do go missing, I, I've already talked a bit about the need for um, recognising these children as children first, um, but we need improved multi-agency responses to them. And we also need, if they're picked up a year later, including if they've turned 18, to again come from a place of thinking that if they've been missing for a year, they might have been trafficked that whole time. And we need a safeguarding response rather than an immigration response and then just briefly to talk more broadly about about children including British children I think that focusing maybe more on the response um, I think some of the most important steps that are needed are about again that cohesive multi-agency work there's often an awful lot of professionals that get involved when a child goes missing but I think we need to sometimes question how many of those professionals actually had a strong relationship with that child and how have we made sure that the organization or the individual that does is part of the picture um, and that complication around multi-agency working gets even even harder when we're talking about children going missing across borders local authority borders and so we need some really kind of robust um, collaborative working happening to respond as, as swiftly as possible. Um, so for me, it's kind of just building on the point that James has said, but seeing missing as a whole journey, not just an individual incident. So yeah, that kind of multi-agency um, activity all bursts up when the child's actually reported missing and when they very, very first return, but it can really drop away in terms of the ongoing support, which in turn is prevention for the next instant. I think about 70% of missing children's incidents are repeats. So everything we do to better support people when they come back is in turn preventing them from facing harm again in the future. And the other one for me is really listening to young people. Um, we don't think going missing is is inevitable. Um, it, there's a certain sense of fatigue sometimes, I think, amongst professionals who see some, some of the same children go missing sort of over and over again, or they don't feel like their interventions are making a difference. But actually, missing is never inevitable. But young people will continue to go if they don't feel like they've been listened to, if the drivers that are making them want to leave aren't being addressed, if we're not putting diversion in place or um, supporting them and really listening to what they want. And that's kind of the final overarching thing that we really want to push all the time is that the response to missing should be child-centred. Going missing is really complicated. There's no kind of single journey that everyone will have gone through. So actually, we need to make our support and the systems in place fit around each young person rather than trying to kind of push them through some process that will fix their problems because that's just not going to happen. So, yeah, being really child centred, um, really creating opportunities for the child's voice to come through and then taking action on what they say, we think make a huge difference to reducing repeats and hopefully also catching some of those young people before they go even a first time. Thank you to both Josie and James for sharing their insights and to you for listening. To find out more about the topic or to get help and support, please take a look at the links that accompany this episode. Mm-hmm.